So uh, this is a really uh, great podcast that we've just recorded with Jamie Arpin Risi. And uh, just, uh, I, I guess I just want to say at the very beginning, um, during about halfway through, we just talked for a little while about, um, for about five minutes about the issue of suicide. And I'm just aware that for, for many that can be a triggering uh, subject. There's people you know who have uh, gone through that journey um, and it can be uh, difficult to listen to. So I just wanted to mention that uh, in, in case it might want you, in case you might not want to listen to this particular episode. But I hope it's a really challenging and moving episode. Um, but I just wanted to mention that. Thanks. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to our latest episode of Guardians of the Flame. Um, this is a podcast series we've been doing for a few months now. And yeah, I hope we're going to keep doing them. Uh, we're interviewing lots of different people over that time um, from around the world, from different spheres of life. I suppose what has been the unifying factor is the fact I think that most of them would have are coming from a faith-based background and mostly from a Christian faith. Um, my desire is not necessarily to do a Christian podcast, um, but I do realize that, you know, obviously many of the people listening would be coming from a, that kind of faith background, but I'm also aware that there'd be people who wouldn't be coming from a faith background. And I hope that anyone listening, you know, will find what we talk about interesting, informative, um, and yeah, and, and so... Yeah, that's kind of what we've been up to. Um, I'm really delighted to be uh, interviewing today um, a guy I've kind of had an, a, um, a correspondence with for probably over 15 years, but more recently in the last uh, couple of years. And and this week, actually, is the first time we've ever met face-to-face, -face, I think. Yeah. Um, Jamie Arpin Risi. So, Jamie, you're very, very welcome. To, Thank you. To, welcome to Ross Trevor, to Ireland to um yeah to, to the guardians of the flame empire <laughs> <laughs> so um uh let me just some some of you listening will know who jamie is uh for those of you who don't jamie's a writer he's written a few books he wrote a fiction book on the death penalty called the last verdict and he wrote um a book called The Cost of Community was the first book I um, read um, of his uh, quite a while ago. It was on the life of, well, it, it touches on the, um, the life of St. Francis. And then he wrote a book, uh, Vulnerable Faith was the same one where St. Patrick That's right. is used, uh, which I haven't read that one, although I did read part of it too. I've been very bad at book reading. Uh, I'm a bad podcaster. Um, so, and Jamie's read uh, written other books. He's a blogger. Um, he's also the co-director of Urban Ministries in Winnipeg for Youth with a Mission, which is again many of you will know YWAM, uh, a kind of a big organization around the world in the Christian um, in the Christian world. Um, largely evangelical, uh, but it's big. There's Catholics, Orthodox, and people with lots of different perspectives, but a kind of a unified sense of um, trying to be um, the hands and feet of Jesus all around the world. Um, he's also the co-director of Community for Generous Space, which is a Christian ministry that provides support and resources for LGBTQ youth and for churches that are wanting to um, be a more hospitable place 
for uh, people coming from the LGBTQ background. So, yeah, there's probably lots we could say about you, Jamie, and I guess we'll touch on that in the next hour or so. So, um, but maybe, uh, yeah, do you want to just tell us quickly, just to start with, tell, tell us about your family and where you live and... Well, I uh, currently live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is the um, pretty much the geographical center of, of Canada, uh, with my Australian wife, Kim, and my uh, Ethiopian son, Micah, and my Canadian daughter, Finley. So I was born in the U.S., so all four of us were born in different countries. Uh, we live in the west end of Winnipeg, which is uh, one of the historic neighborhoods in the city that uh, for the last probably uh, few decades has been... Um, suffering from a lot of economic decline and so is considered a, an inner city neighborhood. Um, but it's also one of the more um, diverse as far as culture and, and race. And uh, so it's also a really wonderful neighborhood to, to be in as a family. Mm. Um, we, uh, we've had um, a few interesting people uh, on this podcast so far. We come from different countries. We had Renee August coming from South Africa and speaking about the South African context. Jared McKenna talking about the Australian context. I wonder just to begin with, um, given that this podcast really accompanies uh, what we hope will be a series of documentaries looking at areas of conflict, particularly where religion and religious belief has informed the conflict and has maybe been part of the active ingredients in sparking the conflict um and but we also hope through the documentary to to paint a picture of how faith and religion can be something that um that brings peace and reconciliation and in, into areas of conflict so given that's the kind of the the broad theme of our documentaries but also even these podcasts to an extent i'd love to just talk about canada a little bit um like I've been to Canada twice. Um, most people in <laughs> most, a lot of, I'm from a Northern Irish Protestant background. Most Northern Irish Protestants have got some uncle or cousin living in Canada, you know, um, and even Kathy Fry's got, Fry, our wonderful sound engineer has uh, got Canadian connections too. So maybe it's not just Protestant background, maybe just all Irish people. We just <laughs> have this magnetic draw to North America. Uh, we find ourselves either north or south of the if your U.S. border. But um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Canada. And um, you've worked a little bit, and you know, with indigenous uh, communities. What's the story of Canada? Like, is this is is the story of the oppression of indigenous people in Canada a, a story that ended a hundred years ago? Like. Um, is it a recent phenomenon? Is it still there? What does it look like? Well, yeah, the, the, the history of, of kind of the oppression of indigenous peoples in Canada started as pretty much as soon as, as uh, European settlers arrived uh, on the shores. And it is, while it's changed uh, tactics, it has gone pretty much unabated ever since. Um, it's particularly in, in the, in the consciousness of Canadians right now, because uh uh, Ten years ago, we started um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which was designed to explore the the history, uh, legacy, and impact of the residential school system in Canada, where uh, Indigenous children were taken away from their homes and communities and forcibly brought to these residential schools where they were... Um, you know, forced to give up their language, their culture. There was severe abuse 
Um, there was um, frequent uh, deaths uh, where just dozens of children would just suddenly not be accounted for because they died from neglect or abuse. Um, and uh, and that went on. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of Canadians just presumed the residential school system was something that was in our distant past, that we had moved past it. But um, it was in the in the mid-90s when the last residential school in Canada actually closed. The mid-90s. Yeah. Mid-1990s. Yes, that's right. So up until that, they were still forcibly taking children yeah, and, and their tactics changed. Yeah, you know they weren't as like as as systematic oppression and and racism go. It tends to adapt to the the cultural mores and and give the pretense of respectability. But functionally, it was still uh, children taken away and uh, uh, put under a a systematic attempt to um, uh, destroy the native culture, the indigenous culture within them. It 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 really was a uh, many of us believe it was a form of genocide. Uh, even it, you know, in some ways, there was obviously a lot of deaths that were involved, but a, a lot of the victims of that genocide still live to this day. And it has had a devastating and, and ongoing impact on multiple generations. What uh, was was religion involved in the kind of the apologetic for for why the government did that? The Canadian government did it. Was there some kind of sense of religious duty or you know it's okay the bible says this or that yeah well the 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 i mean the same kind of uh colonialist uh, mentality that you know drove um around the world with uh, was backed by kind of a theology of manifest destiny that just kind of paired up with the political and economic drives of the time and uh, within canada the vast majority of the residential schools were actually operated by um, uh, churches, the Catholic Church, Anglican Church, and others, um, and so these uh, the the abuses are not simply the result of, of government policy, but they're also they were um, sanctioned by and practiced within church. Wow! So the majority of the of the homes were were Catholic or Anglican. Yes, run. yeah, that's that's my understanding. They they they, they were fairly significant institutions. Mm. Wow. Um, so, so Canada is another one of those countries. Like, obviously, I'm from New Zealand. Um, Jared was from Australia. Renee lived in the South African context. All of those places, there has been colonization there. You know, I mean, here in Ireland, we, the, you know, we experienced a foreign power kind of. Um, deciding that uh, that they wanted what what Ireland had and they wanted to use it um, and in the process uh, you know they colonized a nation they took language um, they they oppressed people and um, and you know it's a long history you know and my forebears were were part of that whole movement my forebears were from kind of the Protestant background of, of people that moved in and I'm sure we we read the Bible I'm sure my my great 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 grandparents read their Bibles probably, and they sang their hymns, and they felt like they were doing something good. Maybe they felt like yeah. maybe God was on their side. Um, that seems to be a kind of a common thread in so many of these places, isn't it? Isn't it? Like religious belief and God's on our side. And Absolutely, and and the, it accompanies by a, a way of thinking reinforced by religious thought that um, 
the only way they can they can rationalize or justify such an action is to have a have a, a view of the the people they're exploiting that is dehumanizing uh, to the point where um, they the the Canadian government would if you look at the documents justifying these these uh, choices you they, they sound as though they're doing something noble you know they're saving the 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 savage as the word was often used, uh, savage Indian from, from their ways, you know, their, their ignorance and their poverty and, and giving them the hope of salvation by introducing them to Christianity, which was inseparable from Western, uh, white, uh, culture. Uh, and that, yeah, again, that was devastating. And do you, you know, we both work for a, a mission organization that we both love. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we are aware that decolonization is probably important and that if unless we're careful, we will be as guilty as as people were hundreds of years ago who, who thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were doing something noble. They yeah. were they were civilizing the savages. You know, how do you see the danger of that in the 21st century? Can can people of faith still be? blindly kind of somehow imposing colonial value, you know, uh, their own values on some other culture in the name of God. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What does that look like? Do you think? I mean, it takes on a lot of different forms. I mean, sometimes what it takes on is this, um, uh, the, the, the kind of the mantle of charity. So you have a, a people group like the indigenous people in Canada who after, you know, generations of systemic subjugation under uh, uh, white colonization, their communities are obviously devastated with poverty, addiction, trauma, uh, and, and uh, you know, forced to live on uh, reservations that are under-resourced by the government that um, had by treaty promised to, to, to do better. Um, and then the, the people can look at, the, oh, look at the, look at the poor Let's go in and help them. And, and, and it reinforces, they are, it reinforces the sense of their inferiority because there's almost an unspoken assumption that they're this way because of somehow because of their nature. Uh, and so it allows uh, a, a lot of times well-intentioned Christians or, or even just Canadians in general will give to causes to help that problem, um, without recognizing, and it'll, it'll ease their conscience. It'll make them feel socially progressive. Uh, when in fact, uh, you know, it's, it, they're, they're still participating in a system that contributed to that reality in the first place. Um, Dr. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is a, uh, African-American, uh, professor of, of the history of races. He's a specialist in the history of racism. And, and he often says the, uh, um, the heartbeat of racism is denial and the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. And so I think uh, until we can stop living in denial and, and which is not only denying when people point it out, but denying it to ourselves and lying to ourselves and embrace and, and acknowledge uh, the historic and current realities of that, I think we're going to keep getting locked in that pattern. Mm. That's really profound. The, the heartbeat of, of racism is denial. So, um, you know, I mean, again, I think um, it just seems, you know, working within a, a faith-based organization that's committed to sharing good news in a sense, um, it's you don't want to hear that you could somehow be part of a systemic injustice, you know. Um, 
And I think the, the, the kind of that sense that confession is part of the solution, you know, is hopeful, but also, wow, it's none of us really want to confess, you know, <laughs> it implies we've done something wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and you're working in Winnipeg. I've never been to Winnipeg. I, I went to a little Mennonite uh, town of, I guess, an hour or so south of you, Winkler, Manitoba, and uh, Morden, Manitoba, two actually really lovely Canadian towns. And in, in, in the most flattest place on the planet, it must be. You know, it's like they, they pointed over at the hill, what they called the hills. And I mean, it, it was, I think it was an optical illusion, you know, I mean, it, it was, maybe there was a tree there that made the horizon slightly bigger, but, um, yeah, it's the kind of place where you can watch your dog run away for three days, <laughs> yeah. but it was actually, it was lovely. The people there were lovely. It was close knit community. Um, so, but I've never been to Winnipeg where you're from, which is a very different, you're, you're not from a small, well, you don't live in a small Mennonite town. You live in a, in a large, fairly large city. Um, mm -hmm. and you're, you kind of very much, uh, confronting, uh, urban poverty, which kind of also leads to, um, you don't have a kind of a conflict like, you know, where we do, where you've got kind of one side, the British against the Irish or the blacks against the whites, you, you know, but you've got a different setting that, that in the same way as it can be viewed through the lens of kind of conflict and the need for reconciliation. What is, what is that? What is Winnipeg like in that sense? Uh, Winnipeg is, is a, a fairly unique city in Canada because it, um, it is a, a city that has w one of the highest per capita populations of indigenous people in an urban center. Uh, it has the largest, uh, French Canadian population outside of Quebec per capita. Um, and, uh, part of the reason for that is, um, as Canada, as as the as the colonization of Canada, as the settlers moved west, um, you would find that the the because the British were were had defeated the French, um, they got to a point in in Manitoba where if you wanted to succeed, you had to Anglo uh, become a. Uh, English speaker and English culture. And, and, uh, and so you saw the French Canadians kind of stop there. And, and, uh, and for the indigenous people, uh, Winnipeg has always been a sacred place. Winnipeg was built around the, uh, confluence of two major rivers that, that flow down through the States. And so, uh, it was a major trading route. Um, historical records have indigenous people meeting there for over 10,000 years, uh, in that spot. And so it's always been an important place for, for indigenous peoples. And so today it, it, it maintains that kind of um, diversity, uh, but it also uh, it has become known as a city that uh, struggles with racism, maybe perhaps more than other cities within Canada. Um, and, and I don't know why that is entirely, but I, I sometimes feel that Winnipeg has become something of a microcosm of our country because it, it has a very vibrant uh, immigrant community, um, including a growing refugee community, um, again, a, a, a significant indigenous population for an urban center when as, as more and more young indigenous families leave reservations uh, and, and seek to find work and, and, and education within the city. Um, it creates some, some unique dynamics. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I wonder, you know, the, the, the title Guardians of the Flame implies that there are people who are, well, as, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said, uh, they are guardians of the flame. They, their life somehow 
um, protects religion from being something that is uh, toxic and harmful. Who I just wonder if you could kind of unpack Winnipeg a little bit for us through the lens of maybe a a person or two that you would feel are kind of guardians of the flame. Who can you kind of tell us about? Uh, you know, you don't need to mention their names, but like, what would it look like for someone in in a place like Winnipeg to to kind of be really living out an embodied, uh, beautiful picture of faith that, um, you know, I, I, um, I didn't grow up Mennonite, but I've, I've, uh, become Mennonite, uh, by conviction in, in, in my middle years. And, uh, I'm part of a, a Mennonite church that we planted in that YWAM helped plant in the, in the inner city of Winnipeg. Um, and, uh, which is part of the, the, the denomination of Mennonite church, Canada. Uh, what used to be called General Conference Mennonites, um, and by no means is is my denomination um, any different than any others that, with respect to having examples of of um, you know compromise or or um, struggles or or stuff. But I've been really uh, impressed with how many people uh, from Mennonite Church Canada, especially a number of the leaders that are within Winnipeg, have given their lives to because of their Christian convictions to, um, standing up for, uh, the indigenous, uh, peoples and, or standing with, I should say, standing with the indigenous peoples in situations of injustice, uh, specifically. Um, and I will name him because you should look up his books is, uh, Steve Heinrichs. He's, he works, he works, uh, with Mennonite church Canada and, uh, he has written and as well as edited a number of incredible books around, um, settler, uh, First Nations relations and a lot of faith-based material. Um, he has uh, stood with Indigenous peoples in in British Columbia when the government was forcing the oil uh, oil pipeline through their lands, and he he was arrested and spent some time in jail for that. Um, and and it, it's just a man who, uh, uh, to 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 use a phrase uh, of an African American activist, he spends his privilege on behalf of others. He, it's not that he's, he's not the savior. Uh, he's not their voice for them, but he, he uses what privilege he can to, to stand with and, and beside and behind, uh, the indigenous community, uh, as, and he does so, uh, as an act of repentance, as an act of confession of our Christian and specifically our Mennonite complicity, uh, in, in, you know, that kind of creeping, cultural genocide that Canada uh, experienced. And it's an interesting thing because many Mennonites, uh, we think that our history is, is, not, is not caught up in that. We didn't have any residential schools. And, and many Mennonites have a lot of identity in, in, in fleeing religious persecution and coming to Canada. And, and, and so they, they're like, oh, we can identify with the Indigenous people. And there's a degree of truth to that. But what is often missed is they came to Canada and were given land by the government that belonged to the indigenous people, you know? And so, um, and of course, back then there was no concept of that, but it means that we as a community have to participate in that active confession of our historic and, and contemporary participation in, in things. So Steve to me embodies, and, and I, I use him as a kind of a touchstone because he's got a, a, an incredible community around him, uh, that, that get involved, um, there was a uh, campaign to uh, um, uh, change some laws in, in Canada with respect to Indigenous rights and, and so forth. And um, they were going to have a, the Mennonites were planning a rally in Winnipeg and they were, you know, they're like, okay, set up chairs for, 
for 500 people and they broke four figures. Like they just, the, the place was jam packed and, and uh, it, it really, it gave me hope. So from within my community though, though, that's a, that's an example. Yeah. I love the, I, I love that phrase, uh, spending your privilege. Um, so like, you know, I, I think if Isaiah 58 says, you know, spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, you know, and, and I, and I think the word that has been used by, uh, many Christians is that we want to be a voice for the voiceless, for instance. And I, I've always kind of liked that phrase on one, on one level. And then I recently heard someone saying, uh, nobody, well, there's very few people who don't have a voice. It's just no one wants to listen to them. Mm. <laughs> so the, the question is not, do we need to be their voice or do we need to somehow give them a, uh, give them the opportunity to be heard? You know, are we not listening? And to spend your privilege, I think, is your your version of that phrase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I I intentionally replaced the phrase "voice" being a voice for the voiceless with uh, "spending my privilege" because "voice of the voiceless" sounds like I'm you know like I'm doing you're something the magnanimous. You're the, you're the you're the savior, right? Well, and 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 that you know that it was that that it's a generous thing that I'm doing. Spending my privilege is premised on the concept that my privilege is ill-gotten gains. You know, I have a wealth that is not, that shouldn't belong to me and it came at the expense of others. And so I need to, I need to get it out of my possession. I need to bankrupt myself of privilege. And the thing about privilege in our culture is culture replenishes our privilege, right? I'm, I'm, I could do everything I can do. I'm still a white man and I'm still going to live with that privilege. And so I, I try to think of ways and, and, and because it's not my wealth, then it means I need to turn to indigenous leaders, for example, and say, how should I spend my wealth and, and, and let them be their own voice and, and uh, let them take leadership and, and, uh, and me follow. Mm. Um, I wonder if we'll kind of, we could maybe go into a little bit of your story and kind of how you got to where you're at. Like you're, um, you've got a lovely family, you're working in the middle of a big city, you're um, yeah, doing what you can do, but um how did you get to where you're at right now? And uh, how did you get to be working with an LGBTQ organization that's trying to help people? You know, what what did uh, working for a Christian mission organization, how did that prepare you for that? So let's kind of go into your story a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah. I, do you want to just kind of go for it, go back 20 years and you were kind of thinking about joining uh, an organization called YWAM, you know, why would you want to do that? And uh, yeah. well, I have to go back a little further than I go okay. back 25 years, but, right, uh, but thanks for, for thanks for thinking I'm that young. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up in a, in a rural, uh, little rural community in Northwestern Ontario that kind of had a, a stereotypical Canadian um, kind of feel to it. Like when I tell people stories of growing up, like when I was at school, I, I had to, you know, call a bunch of little kids inside because there was a moose in the middle of the playground or, you know, like, um, we would catch, we, we get live bear traps brought to our yard because, you know, there'd be a bear around and it wasn't safe. So we'd get up in the morning, Oh, we caught a bear, you know? And so things like that. And, and it, you know, I was, that life was the life I thought I would be leaving, leading a simple rural life. And, you know, I had a part of a small evangelical community, um, um, but I was also uh, very much uh, into into theater, which in a small town of hockey and hunting was unusual. Uh, thankfully, uh, my church had a little uh, little drama 
club that I was a part of. But when I graduated from high school, I just didn't feel ready to um, go to university. I, that was my plan. I was I wanted to come back and run the newspaper that had been in our family business for probably three generations, four generations at that point. Um, and someone told me, oh, hey, YWAM has an Academy of Performing Arts in, in uh, Cambridge, Ontario, and it's only five months. And so uh, I, I went to YWAM thinking it would just be a, a five-month little deal. And uh, while I was there, I had a quite a, 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 an interesting encounter with God. And, and I kind of my time with why a lot of people experience this, like my religious pretense just kind of got ripped away. And I'm like, what is, you know, what do I believe? And, and, um, I'm not the type of person who like often kind of hears the voice of God. I feel like I get impressions when I'm praying and so forth, but this was a time where it was like super clear. And, uh, um, I, cause I remember I, I, <laughs> not recommending this. I, I raised my fist to heaven and shook my fist at God and said, what do you want from me? And, and I heard clear, clear as a bell. Um, after your DTS, you could go home, go to university, marry a wonderful woman, raise a family, have the job of your dreams, have a house by the river, be a, be a leader in your church and it will be good. And I will bless it. Or you can have my best but all I'm telling you to do is join YWAM. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, and that was a lesson that I've carried with me ever since. And is that the, the hardest choices in life are not between that, which is good and bad, but that between that, which is good and best. Mm. Um, and, uh, so I decided to stay in YWAM. Um, thankfully my family was supportive. I, I, I was a very good student. So everyone assumed I would go right on to university and, and, uh, I, instead I went into this, uh, performing arts ministry. Um, yeah. And I, and I was in Cambridge, uh, for a couple of years until it closed and, uh, kind of, uh, found myself moving out West in BC to work with, um, a training base that is also no longer there in Winfield. And, uh, it was there that, uh, someone had mentioned to me, Hey, you know, you should, you should consider doing urban ministry. And I laughed and I said, you know, God would have to write fiery letters in the sky for me to do that. And then within a year of that, I felt like I was supposed to, to go to Winnipeg, which is close to where I grew up. And, uh, so I joined staff in YWAM Vancouver, uh, so that I could spend a couple of years getting to know urban ministries and Vancouver is an incredible city. It's, it's, um, especially the downtown East side for, for much of uh, the last decade, it, it was considered the, the poorest postal code in the country. Um, uh, heroin use was, was extremely rampant. Uh, HIV largely related to the drug use was, was considered pandemic. And, uh, you know, uh, someone overdosed and died under the YWAM, like beside the YWAM building one morning. And, and it really, it really impacted me that, um, the, the faith that I grew up with had no accommodation for addressing that kind of suffering and that kind of poverty. And so, um, it was actually at that point that I first, uh, came across St. Francis of, of Assisi as kind of the, like this patron saint to the poor. Um, and, and from there I began to discover, it's interesting. I, I, I it was a largely Catholic, um, figures and writers like, uh, Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, um, Jean Vanier, uh, Henry Nouwen. 
And these people started informing my, my theology with, with concepts of justice. And, and, uh, and so that's what I wanted to end up carrying with me to Winnipeg when, uh, my wife and I, well, we, we literally got married and our honeymoon was starting the YWAM base in the city of Winnipeg. (laughs) I mean, I have to say like, you know, I think we were talking about before how, um, you know, that our work should not be about kind of just being these saviors that kind of go in and fix things. And, Mm. and the, the sad irony that often we want to help poor people in places like Haiti or, um, in deepest, darkest Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they come to our country, we're not so sure about that, you know. Mm. And so fears of immigration are rising among the same in the same churches of where people are wanting to send out short-term teams. And that, you know, that's not to just to kind of jump on the bandwagon of let's all just uh, shout at Christians and and you know we both work for an, uh, you know in that kind of field of mm. desiring to help people that are poor, but. Yet I think the difference of and what has so impressed me about your work over the years and people like you um, is not that you've just tried to take people to go to little to these countries for a week or two, but you've sought to kind of be incarnational, which you know to to live among the people. And this morning we were we were at uh, the Benedictine Monastery up the road, and a couple of episodes of this podcast ago we interviewed Brother Thierry uh, Marteau, who's a French monk, one of the French monks up there, and is just a lovely guy. But he said something this morning that I thought was lovely. He talked about how when he, if he was writing the gospel, if he was creating what the gospel would be, it would be about a people kind of walking towards a God that they would find on a, on a great throne and they would come to him. But the story is this unlikely story of a God that comes to us, you know, mm. and it comes to us as we are, you know. Um, in the broken kind of fallible kind of condition that we are. And, and I think somehow you've embodied a way of doing kind of mission that is not about a white savior, having a white savior complex, you know, being the great Messiah on a white horse, but about, you know, in, in humility, living with people and, and setting up home with tabernacling with them, you know, as mm. John talks about and, the first chapter, you know, um, and that seems to be something hopeful about that. Has that been is incarnational? Is that the word that? Yeah, you would I, use? I think I think it is. I mean, like I said, I was being informed by these readings that I was doing, and and in my living in in Vancouver. And when I came to Winnipeg, um, my my wife had actually made connections in Winnipeg when we were planning on moving there, and she had met this um, a North American Baptist pastor named Harry Lahotsky. Uh, who was uh, was saved as a kid on the on Hell's Kitchen in Hell's Kitchen, New York City? He'd OD'd on drugs, and a Christian cop had saved him, I believe, and and he became this like I'm going to be a pastor, and they put him in this rural church, and he couldn't sleep at night because it was too quiet. So he says, "Just give me the, the the hardest, most dying church you have," and so they they gave him Winnipeg in the inner city there, and uh, he'd been there for many years by the time we got there, and he he was a he was a hardcore you know, social justice Baptist, which sometimes sounds like a contradiction to some people, but, you know, he was deeply informed by the the writings of Walter Rauschenbosch and, and, um, he was an activist on behalf of the neighborhood and, um, and, and, and we had connected with him and he said, listen, he says, if you come and, 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 and make this neighborhood yours and you're willing to like be a neighbor first, we'll help you. We'll, we'll help you get housing. We'll help you, you know, and they sold us our first home, um, put us up in apartments. Uh, 
but he's like, if you're, if you're planning on commuting or if you just want to run programs for the people in the neighborhood, he's like, God bless. I don't have any time for you. Right. And, and, and the, <laughs> he said all this the first time I met him and we were walking around the neighborhood and he's like, Oh, come over here. And he, and he says, I want to show you something. He goes up to this building and there's a, there's a door with police tape on it. And he rips the police tape off and puts his shoulder to the door and knocks the door in. And we walk into this. He says, yeah, yeah. You know, there was a crime scene, but this is our building now. We're cleared to go in. And he's talking about the troubles in the neighborhood. And, and, and as I'm standing there, I see this Brown streak across the floor, uh, through the kitchen and up into the bathtub. And I'm thinking, Oh, like, um, working with heroin addicts, brown streaks are generally people whose, whose bowels have not. And I'm thinking, Oh, this is really sad. And I said, Oh, was this, you know, someone have an overdose? And he said, no, this, someone was murdered here and they were, this is blood. They were dragged across the room. This was his, this was his sales pitch for us to come to the neighborhood, you know? And I'm like, I can get out of here. Like, this is not, but my wife was, she caught the vision and, and she's the one who, who said, listen, what, if we can't come and be, be part of this neighborhood, then what, what's it like, what are we doing? And, you know, and, and I, I can't tell you how many stories, uh, of my ministry, uh, are my wife having strength and courage and hope when I'm just, you know, cynical and despairing. But, uh, so yeah, we, we decided to stay and we made a commitment that we weren't going to be, uh, we wouldn't ask for a dollar from any, any Christians or churches in the city for the first several years. It ended up almost being, um, our whole time there, um, that we would, uh, we would act as though we were going into a culture that we didn't know which, which we were. So we, we, we would learn the language. We would volunteer at places. We'd get to know our neighbors, um, which at the time were, they were all crack houses. And so that's, that's tricky. Um, and, and we didn't, we didn't run any programs, like we were doing ministry, we we're helping in places, but we didn't run any programs in our neighborhood for, for a couple of years because we wanted to have the credibility in the neighborhood. And it really took about five years before the, the neighborhood said, okay, yeah, you're here, you know, so we, we'll, 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 we'll maybe start trusting you. And so the incarnational approach of just being present among it, it wasn't, it wasn't an, uh, like an act of like really highly spiritual. It was, it was an act of humility to go, we're not, we don't know what we're doing. This is their neighborhood. This is their culture. Unless they teach us, we, we have nothing to offer them. And that set up a, a, a real important sense of mutuality early on. And that, that mutuality that this wasn't us doing ministry to our neighborhood is we were sharing life alongside our neighbors. It, mm. it changed everything. It, and we had as much to learn in some ways as, as you had to teach. Far more. We had far more to learn from them than we had to teach. I, I, I always say it's like, yes, I believe we've, we've helped our neighbors in our, in our neighborhood, but I, I have gained so much more than I ever have given. Um, and continue to do so. Hmm. Um, one of the most, uh, how do I describe it? I guess explosive, controversial issues facing Christian churches of almost all stripes, creeds, faiths, denominations is the area of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's it's not a great, um, uh, you know, you don't need to be hugely enlightened to know that as people of faith, we have uh, really been at best ignorant and at worst we've provided significant damage to people mm. um, who identify themselves uh, as a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, or you know, part of that broader kind of queer conversation. And mm-hmm. um, 
obviously, you know, Youth of the Mission, we're like many of those churches and organizations. We're, we've stumbled along, we've tried our best, and I, and, um, and, but, but of course we make mistakes too. And, um, you've kind of put your neck on the line a little bit by kind of telling your story, um, uh, of your own sexuality and, um, and when you do so, obviously you don't speak for all of YWAM, you know, we, we don't as an organization where a broad decentralized group of people, you know, bonded by a kind of a sense that we feel like we're following Jesus, you know, mm. um, which is kind of why I'm part of it. Uh, mm -hmm. it's why I joined, you know, 25 years ago, you know, there was something I could see flaws in almost any denomination, any church I'd ever been in. Uh, but there was something about this kind of sense of family that I felt and the YWAM tradition and the YWAM family that, that made me want to be part of it. But nevertheless, we've, we also make mistakes, you know, um, mm -hmm. and you've stayed in that kind of, uh, it's part of Youth with a Mission over all these years. And yet, um, it's been a, a challenge for you and that, and you've kind of come out publicly, you've written blogs about your experience. Mm -hmm. Um, you kind of came out as bisexual. Can you kind of Tell us a little bit about, I guess, I mean, you know, again, you could write a book about all this stuff uh, and you could, we could do about five podcasts here on this, but do you want to just touch on a little bit of what was your early life like in terms of wrestling with your identity, coming into a place of working for a big Christian organization and then suddenly realizing you were welcome, but not necessarily all parts of you were welcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, for most of my, my life, I, I shared YWAM's, you know, belief about, uh, sexuality. It would, it's often referred to as a traditional view. Um, and so, uh, even when I, at, at around 15 kind of realized that my attractions were different than my peers, um, I, I was like, I don't want this. I, you know, like it, it was terrifying, especially in a, in a, hyper masculine rural culture um and uh and so i when i when i came out i i came out in a way that was like i don't want this i just want to oh, i just want you to know when i was telling friends and family um I, I know this isn't i would say i know this isn't god's best for me and and uh um yeah that was really it was really hard because again this is this is a rural canada pre-internet Right. So I didn't have access to anything. And the occasional time I'd go in the city, I'd, I'd walk into a, uh, a Christian bookstore and I'd find that little section in the corner that you're always awkward about homosexuality. There's a label on the top and I'd pull a book off and I'd desperately read through as many chapters as I could to try to understand, you know, what made me this way, how can I fix it? And, um, you know, there was, there was nothing really compellingly, um, impacting me from that material as, as, as much as I, I clung to it. And, um, you know, so I was like, you know, I'll just, uh, at the time I thought I was gay. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's like, but I'm not all the way gay because I still find women attractive. So maybe that's just God's way of telling me there's hope. I had no concept of bisexuality. I didn't have the, the category of it. Right. And so, um, well, and I think most people, still to this day find it difficult to understand what that even is. You know? Absolutely. And, and, and even within the, the, uh, the wider queer community, there's a lot of erasure of, of bisexual people, even from, uh, you know, largely the, the, the gay and lesbian community. Um, 
who, who often, not everyone, but a lot of people are like, you need to pick a side, you know, they're in the, in the dating world, a lot of, of gay and lesbian men and women won't date someone who identifies as bi because, and there's all sorts of excuses and myths. And, and so bisexual people are, are, have been significantly under-resourced. And so even, even now, so imagine, you know, 30 years ago, um, um, yeah. And so I, I, I decided this was all kind of happened within two years of, of joining YWAM and um, uh, I joined YWAM. I was on my DTS and, and even there I had great leaders who, who were really supportive. There was no attempt to try to, to pray the gay away or, or perform an exorcism. Like I, I, I have so much respect for my school leaders, but inevitably, you know, fellow students would, would make comments, not about me cause they didn't know, but they'd make comments that were incredibly hurtful and, 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 and shame producing and fear inducing. And I would, I would just drive into myself. And, um, shortly after my DTS and I joined staff, I was flying home for a visit and, uh, a flight attendant, male flight attendant, um, flirted with me and, and he was an attractive guy. And I was, you know, I was a young, attractive guy and, and I, I freaked out and, and I just like, what, what's going to happen. And, and because I didn't know what to do, I, um, I, it's so ridiculous. I got back to YWAM and I intentionally put on about 50, 60 pounds of weight because I, if I'm unattractive, then it won't be a problem. Right. Um, which then just produces, you know, body shame and, and so forth. And, and this is the problem, you know, it's, we think it's simply about lust, but it's not, it's about identity. It's about, um, self image. It's about, connectedness with people. And, and here I was just spiraling and, uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really, really hard. Um, so it took a few years before I was able to, you know, start getting some stability within that. Um, and, uh, and, and that was largely because slowly with the internet, there was access to multiple materials, even within, within the traditional view that were, were more healthy and more helpful. Um, but even then I, I held to the view that this wasn't God's best for me. So, um, when I got married, uh, I'm really grateful because I, I didn't marry my wife in any way to try to solve the problem or, you know, like bypass having to deal with that. She was someone that I, I met and fell very deeply in love with very early on. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. But even then, because I didn't have the language of what bisexuality was, my wife had to live with the uncertainty of, is our marriage stable? What will happen if one day Jamie decides, you know, he's, he, he, he doesn't want this. And, and again, so even marriages are, are, are harmed within the church when we don't help people understand when we say it's a simple right and wrong issue rather than helping people walk through it. Um, and through all this, I mean, you know, this is now years into YWAM. I started seeing that in every, almost every single DTS that I saw run, a student lived with, um, same sex attraction, uh, or were, was questioning, uh, their gender identity. And it was, it was the, the untalked about reality. And so I started being the person who could be compassionate because I understood. And I suddenly I started seeing that the compassion was bearing better fruit in their life than the, the moral uh, teaching that, that they were somehow broken and need to be fixed. And, um, it started me on a journey of, of, of deeper research and understanding both for my own sake and others. Um, 
yeah, which eventually led to, to what I'm doing today. I mean, there's a lot that happens between that, but it was, it was a, a long and slow and painful process to get there. And I think, um, I think for many of us who, you know, we, we follow Jesus, we have such a deep connection to the person of, of, of Jesus, you know, and, and there's beauty in that. And, uh, I think it's very hard. We used, we talked a few minutes ago about confession is what exposes racism. And, and, uh, I think what's difficult for all of us in a faith background is to have any kind of sense of confession that we might have contributed. We might be part of a system that actually results in victims, that people getting hurt, you know? Um, we want to talk about the gay person that gets hurt as an exception, as a bizarre kind of, uh, you know, power. but what is really scary and what I guess I've dealt with in the last few years is realizing these are not exceptions that if I'm not careful that what I'm perpetuating as good as it is in many ways will could still harm uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a person with same-sex attraction could be deeply damaged and I, I, m- I remember reading a statistic that you quoted um, which is that you know so, so many people so many young people uh, with same-sex attraction end up having suicidal ideation but if you have um, religious identification, you're maybe 38% more likely to have suicidal ideation, which is a, a freaky, scary concept. Yeah, it, it is. And, and the statistic goes up for, for people who've actually chosen to, to take their life. And uh, for me, that was an eye-opening reality because it said, like, even if the traditional view is right, we're clearly doing something wrong because uh, Jesus was so clear that, that the fruit that is produced in lives of the spirit of love are good. Yeah. You'll know people by their fruit. Exactly. And if our fruit is, is suicide, then there's something wrong. Yeah. And, 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 and honestly, suicide, we look at that because it's, it's kind of in some ways the most, the ultimate end, Mm -hmm. but it is, it is the, it is the one, it is the capstone out of, uh, countless other challenges of, of, um, systemic, uh, depression, like, um, uh, eating disorders, uh, uh, self-harm, um, uh, dangerous promiscuity, um, you know, uh, self-destructive behavior, uh, all these things that they, they get increased. And, and, and some people will say, well, that's, you know, there's a correlation there because they're queer, they're, they're problematic, but the statistics all show also show that when, you support them in there and you, you resource them, they get better. Like even, I don't know the exact statistic, but even amongst trans youth, just using the name that they've chosen for themselves, just, just, just that name has a significant impact on the, the likelihood of suicide ideation or, or, um, uh, suicide attempts. Hmm. And, and I would say that if, if many people are like me, whether you have faith or not, that you, we, particularly at my age, 44, I think younger people, my kid's age, are much more familiar with friends that have two dads or two moms or, you know. um, But for me, my generation and older, obviously, it wasn't. It was a big secret. It was a big, dirty secret, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we don't really know much. And we have lovely theologies of how to fix people and why people are the way they are. And... um, it seems to me that we need to take seriously the the damage that we could be causing, and 
um, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine, um, he was one of those who kind of came through um, the Christian world and ended up on the other side. He didn't get healed. His same-sex attraction was still there, and it didn't lead him to disbelieve in God. It led him, as in his words to me, to believe that God hated him. Mm. Um, and a few years later, I found him, you know, not in a happy place in his life at all. And and I said, you know, what do you think about your faith, about God? And he said, God hates me, you know. So he believed the theology that, but that there was something wrong with him, uh, his his and, but he couldn't cope with it anymore and just kind of gave in and he said, well, I'll just go to hell, you know, and uh, for me that was one of those moments where I realized something has to change somewhere. Absolutely, and I think that's the that's a, a point that's really important to make that the more robust a person's faith is the more damaging it is if they're, if they're queer and they're not allowed, because if you don't have a strong faith, you, you know, okay, well then I'm going to give it up. But if you're, if you have the deep spirit, soul conviction of, 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 of God's word of, of Christ, and yet you're also carrying into that, that you're fundamentally um, uh, deviant and, and, and any attempt to fix has failed. Where does that leave you? Like, you can't be dishonest about your faith in God and you can't be dishonest about the nature of, of, of your identity. And that is, that is torture. And so it's like the more faithful you are, the more toxic it is to you, mm. you know, and that's tragic. Yeah. And, and it, it, and we mustn't forget that one of the stories Jesus tells is of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he leaves 99 of them to go find the one mm. who's, hurt and damage. And I think sometimes we're, we're okay with the collateral damage of the LGBTQ person who gets spat out of the back end of a church and mm. isn't making it. And we think, well, he probably mm. had his own issues, uh, mm -hmm. but we've got a whole church to look after. We've got a whole mission organization to look after. And I mm -hmm. think it is an uncomfortable truth that Jesus told that story, you know? Yeah. Um, and we wish we could just go to that one person and fix them and make them right and make them just like what we are. Mm -hmm. But it sadly doesn't really work like that. We have to see them as humans and help them as they are. And we need to understand, like they, we can't claim that because we've read a few scripture verses that we understand the complexity of their, their experience. They need to be the ones who define the reality of their experience. And then if, if we're going to apply our faith to that, it has to be on that basis. Um, again, going back to Dr. Kendi's quote about uh, racism and confession, um, that value is really something that is part of YWAM's DNA, the openness and brokenness. And I, I remember being deeply inspired as a young YWAMer when the reconciliation walks happened, uh, where um, we saw uh, YWAMers and other Christians uh, walk the, the crusade trails uh, through, through Europe towards, towards Israel and along the way repent of the historical um, uh, savagery that the crusaders and, and the treatment of Christians towards Muslim people uh, had. And, and there was no agenda. We were not evangelizing. We're not on a mission trip. We are there to, to repent. And, and like, it was beautiful. And it, it, and I think it shifted a lot of people's mindsets around their relationship as Christians to the Muslim community. And so they weren't saying they didn't change their view on Islam. 
in the sense of oh, so, you know, Islam is the same as Christianity. They still believe Christianity is 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 the right way. In the same way, I think YWAM has the potential, even holding this traditional view, to model that kind of confessional um, gospel to say we as the church have failed, and make an unqualified apology and 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 even. And even active, uh, the Crusades happened a long time ago. This is happening now. We have the we have the opportunity to to practice reparations and restoration around some of these things we've done. That is going to be our greatest witness: is the acknowledgement that we've gotten it wrong, not a triumphalistic. We have the have the answer. Mm. Our troubles in Northern Ireland reignited two weeks ago when uh, a young girl, Lyra McKee, mm. was shot dead by a dissident Republican group called calling themselves the New IRA. And what was tragic about her is that she uh, just appeared to be a, just a wonderful young woman. Um, I have a couple of mutual friends of hers, um, and and just seeing their sadness and the sadness of a whole country, really. Um, you know, a headline in one of the Irish paper was that Lyra McKee was not an enemy of Irish freedom. She was Irish freedom. Mm. Uh, and part of the deeper story of her that she bear, bore witness to in a TED talk was her um, that she was a lesbian woman and her growing up in an environment where religion was deeply toxic to her. Um, and it left her hating herself. Um, and um, I know that TED Talk itself had been, it meant a lot to you mm-hmm. some time ago before her killing. Yes. Uh, what was it about that that struck you? Well, there was a couple of things. One of the things that struck me was here was a, a woman who had experienced some tremendous um, uh, mistreatment and, 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 and um, harm done in the name of Christianity because of who she was, both directly and indirectly. I mean, it's not just direct mistreatment that is the problem. It's the fact that the culture sends these messages everywhere. Um, her response justifiably could have been absolute and unequivocal rejection and 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 condemnation of of religion or at least Christianity. But she tells this story about how her own self-reflection led her to recognize the 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 humanity. And and the beauty and the depth behind when when the flame is guarded right, and 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 she took it upon herself to, even though she was the one who was the recipient of of injustice, to pursue reconciliation and and understanding and and I, that 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 um, TED talk was really for me it was like this sums up my vocation is the desire to see the religious harm done to LGBTQ people end. Um, and, and that's something we can commit to regardless of what you believe on the topic. I mean, I believe that harm will happen um, as long as people believe that there's something fundamentally flawed about LGBT, LGBTQ people. But I think we can reduce the amount of harm massively if, if we embrace that. And, and she, you know, she, she modeled that with such honesty and grace, uh, that, um, when, when she, when she was killed, um, it it felt to me like I have a responsibility in my context to, to, to pick up that flame a little bit more meaningfully. Yeah. I, um, I was in a position a couple of years ago in a room with a bunch of, uh, leaders, um, Christian leaders and, 
the discussion was about how what we were meant to do about the the conversation, the LGBTQ conversation. Um, and I have to say that um, wonderful people in the room, but very quickly um, we slipped into these old patterns of behavior. We need to erect walls, boundaries to protect us from them, uh, from from an idea that is out there that could corrode us and, and destroy us. Uh, and so fear became a very big motivation somehow in that room that day. And people were talking about we need to draw a line in the sand. We need to... We need to make a statement. We need to put on our websites what we believe about this issue, mm. uh, as if that will somehow make the fear go away, as if it will make the risk go away. And I guess I want to just share this because I felt, just as we talked to you, you know, we share a similar, um, you know, uh, family, spiritual family in terms of YWAM and, and kind of evangelical Christianity. Um, I remember at the time just suddenly being aware of the people in my life that since I was 17 had come out to me and told me about their what they would have described as their same-sex struggle. This, They didn't want to be this way. They wanted to be somewhere else. They wanted to be someone else. Um, and I was aware of those of my friends who had, had harmed themselves, mm -hmm. uh, those who had had suicidal thoughts, uh, those who had wrestled with a deep sense of self-hatred. Um, and I just became aware of the fact that we were sitting in a room it, talking about spending our privilege, our privilege. We were just trying to figure out how to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. there were, we just were not thinking about people. And so I, I remember that day I kind of stood up and I just started to tell the stories of three people who had been deeply hurt by our actions. Mm. Um, and and I, I remember I started to cry. I remember being deeply moved by this organization that I'm part of, this movement of Christianity. We are about loving people. And sure, it would be great if we could flick a magic wand and we could say a magic incantation that would fix them. But I have, I've seen people wrestle with it for 30 years and try to be fixed and try to, and all it does is just damage them more and more. And if all we have to do is pr pr fear, and protect ourselves, then there's something deeply wrong. Mm. And and I suppose even doing this podcast with you, I'm, the last thing I actually really <laughs> want to do is create a whole bunch, another, let's have a big rumpus, a big fight, you know. But I do feel the deep sense of the urgency that is people who bear the name of Jesus must look like Jesus. Mm. Um, as Pope Francis said, you know, shepherds should smell like their sheep, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, we can't be in this ivory towers or these tower, these walled off communities trying to protect ourselves. Mm. We've got to be in and among the people and we've got to be loving people. And that doesn't mean just trying to fix them. It doesn't mean trying to create laws and regulations that mm. will protect us. And um, we've got to do something better than that. What, what do you think it looks like? What is it, how can a Christian church or an organization, how can we do better in this? What's some of the first steps that we can do if really trying to go, let's not be part of the problem anymore. Let's try to befriend people. Let's make our home a safe place. Well, I think, I think one of the, the hardest things I found to get people to do is one of the simplest. And that is simply that they commit themselves to, um, learning about the realities of LGBTQ people 
from a perspective, like not, not through the lens of a, someone who shares their belief, but from the, from the, the people themselves, from us, as we tell our stories, especially people of faith, um, I often have, have, have people, uh, Christians, pastors, even missionaries who contact me and say, listen, your, your position confuses me. How, how did you come to that belief? Do you have an article or something I can read that explains your theology? And I'm like, like, how many people have a, a, a deeply held theology that can be summed up in an article? And I'm like, the best I can do is I can recommend a couple of books. I'm like, oh, no, I, I can't read a book. I'm sorry. And I'm, my, my point is, if you can't take the time to read even one book from someone who's giving you a different perspective, and yet you 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 think you can be an authority on what is right and best for those people, you sh- you need to be careful because that kind of ignorance is is damaging. And so just being willing to to... Take the time and 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 with an open mind and open heart, um, study whether it, and if you're not a reader, there's there's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's all sorts of material now, like never before that can help you get insight, and that's a first step. And and I used to say as a first step was to try to build relationship with uh, an LGBTQ person. Unfortunately, I saw people do that, and because of their ignorance, just do more harm. And I, and I would say you can still do that as long as as long as the person is like a very strong and confident, stable person. Even then, it's gonna it's gonna hurt them. But if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to do the work and 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 try to understand, I think I think that's when the the the, the building of an actual relationship. And I don't mean just like having coffee once, but actually. Um, consistently over a period of time, building a relationship. I think of the early church um, uh, coming together to around the table of Christ, like breaking bread together. And at the table, you would have um, uh, Jews and Gentiles, you'd have men and women, and you'd have slaves and, and, and masters. Uh, and, and while they were around that table, they were brothers and sisters. And, and that, was, that alone was socially scandalous of the time, because you know if you weren't related, you don't sit at a table with a woman. You you don't sit with a with a gentile you, you a slave and a master a slave should be serving and 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 yet in that moment and so we don't see in the new testament a condemnation of of misogyny we don't see a condemnation of 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 slavery but the seeds of 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 their transformation were planted at that table because how long can i sit across the table from you and break bread and call you brother and 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 still be slave and master the, and and so if 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 we do that, we don't have to worry as much about who's right and proving has the right theology. Let's have relationship and see what the spirit, what kind of fruit the spirit brings forth, and and that tends to transform uh, people's lives. Even people who who, main, who maintain a traditional view or people who adopt an affirming view, you can't help but be transformed by those relationships because we go from a, a dehumanized ideology to uh, an incarnational love for an actual person. Yeah, in any kind of conflict, the biggest step you can take is to become friends with the person on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, I remember during the during the, our peace process, there became more and more of a sense that we 
I, as a Protestant, I should go and have tea with a Catholic, you know, and, mm -hmm. I, you know, where do, you, where do I find the Catholics? Oh, I don't know, you know, I've got to go and do it. But there was, I didn't really have a problem with doing it. I didn't know where to find them. Well, I knew where to find them, but I didn't know how to <laughs> just <laughs> walk into a pub and go, hello, I'm here to have tea with you, you know. Um, but, but I think for many people, uh, befriending an LGBTQ person uh, is a little bit intimidating. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, uh, and it's easy to kind of go, well, it's just not my call. It's not my, not for me. Other people can do it. But I, I just hope that people listening will, and hear in your words, um, that sense of the, actually the urgency that all of us listening um, have a duty to be friends with all people and to not view mm. anyone through a dehumanized lens, yeah. but to see people, the imago dei, the, 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 the image of God in all people, um, uh, and uh, and so I, you know, I, I'm I'm really challenged by your words, you know. On that note, I just want to say one thing about um, something you said there, because I think you you hit on a commonly missed dynamic. You know, I, I hear a lot from even well-intentioned Christians say, "Well, this isn't my calling; it's not my field of ministry." And I get that. I, no one's asking them to become a full-time, you know, spend all their days hanging out in the gay village or whatever, right? But, um privilege, and I know that's an uncomfortable word for some people, but one of the best definitions of privilege that I've heard is uh, someone who has the freedom to opt out of a conversation. And so if you're like, it's not really my thing and I go, you can go on your life or you start and you don't like it. And so you quit. That's privilege. As a queer person, I don't have that option. I will always be queer. My son, who's black, he will always be black. He can't opt out of the racism conversation. He can't be at the store and be followed around the store by the shop owner at 11 years old and be like, no, I'm opting out of racism. And the guy walks away. Like, so if you have the, if you have the freedom to opt out, that should be an indicator that you're functioning in a place of privilege and that what's required of you is going to be greater uh, than the other person. And um, not in a sense of, of manipulative, coercive uh, guilt, but... Uh, just recognizing that um, that we do have privilege and we can spend it on behalf of others in that way. So um, I guess we're coming kind of to the end of this podcast, which the listeners are going to be devastated by because uh, there's a whole lot more you could talk about. Um, <laughs> but um, just to say, Jamie has a website, and we'll pro uh, we'll have that on the on the whatever our iTunes account, or you'll be able to you know, access his books. Uh, he's got a, his website, jamiearpinreci.com. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you can get his books directly from him. Jamie's a great communicator. If you write to him, he'll actually write back, unlike uh, possibly me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, and I just encourage whoever's listening just to follow Jamie. He's a, he's a great person to follow. His social media stuff is really good. And he might give you an insight into a kind of a, a lens of looking at the world that you don't see. Um, I just wanted to end this podcast, Jamie, if there's um, like a, a kind of a, a reading from one of your books, maybe your the book Cost of Community that you could kind of leave with us. Um, and can you can you give us one and maybe tell us why you want to read that particular passage? Sure. Yeah. There's a there's a, a um, and actually a bit of a cost of community that uh, is linked to the name of the church we planted, Little Flowers Community. 
that has been incredibly meaningful for me and for our community, especially around issues of marginalization, whether it's uh, racism, poverty, sexuality, gender identity. Um, and it's largely because what we have seen uh, is what I've begun to call the weaponization of belonging. And that I mean, belonging is being used to uh, coerce belief and behavior uh, through fear uh, and judgment so that people fall in line uh, rather than belonging being that which reflects the very nature of, of, of a God who, like you said, came to us. So um, oftentimes in ministry or in churches, you you hear them talk about the three Bs, the three Bs, believing, behaving, and belonging, and how typically in the church um, you teach people what to believe, and then they learn how to behave, and once they've done that, then they belong. Uh, and I think Jesus um, turned that uh, assumption on its head. So that's what we're going to read here. As we seek to live out Jesus' mandate as a community, it inevitably means that we are confronted with difficult situations and uncomfortable questions. By suspending judgment and instead creating a welcoming community of mutually broken people seeking God's healing and salvation together, we do away with the unofficial screening process that so often filters certain people out at the front doors of the church. This means that we find ourselves in close community with people who do not exemplify what we typically think of as good churchgoers. Inevitably, especially when the questions about what it means to be an inclusive and embracing community come up, someone is bound to ask, okay, but where do we draw the line? This is where Jesus' teaching again subverts our expectations showing us that we are asking the wrong question, or at least asking at the wrong time and place. This does not mean that the underlying concerns of this question are not important. Every healthy community requires appropriate boundaries. The question, though, is how and where and what is involved in setting those boundaries. Too often we feel we have to start with a line or with a set of ideals which people have to adhere to, or at least acknowledge, before they can meaningfully belong to the community of faith. I believe this goes against the heart of how Jesus embodied these dynamics. In our community, we have a simple, if imperfect, analogy that helps us articulate what we believe God calls us to. Fittingly, it is the analogy of little flowers. In Mark chapter 9, when Jesus responds to the man whose son was being tormented by an evil spirit, the man declares, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Here we see a person who clearly believes in Christ and his authority to heal his son. And he also acknowledges that he needs to be saved from his unbelief. This is the mustard seed of faith, the tiny seed of belief. Understanding belief as a seed says a great deal. It is a small, simple medium containing untold promise and complexity. It holds within it the potential for something far greater than itself. A seed on its own is nothing. A seed must be planted. We typically presume that belief plants itself in our individual hearts, and while there is an element of truth here, the best, best soil in which the seed of belief will sprout into new life is Christ. Like a seed, we must die to our sin-isolated selves before we can spring to new life in Christ as his body. Here is where the shift in our thinking takes place. Because we are prone to look at salvation in Christ through purely individualistic terms. Rather, Jesus has, by the Holy Spirit, made us into his body, the church. Therefore, it is in the soil of belonging in the embrace of true community, that the seed of belief can best be reborn to new life. 
Unless that seed has life-giving, life-sustaining soil in which to be planted, we cannot expect its transformation. As the seed of belief sprouts new life in the soil of belonging, it begins to be shaped by the DNA inherent in the seed. It is being raised into the image of the resurrected Christ while also being restored to its intended nature of being created in God's image. It spreads its roots in the soil of belonging and sprouts into the world as the little flowers it has meant to be. As clumsy as the term might sound, these are the little flowers of behavior. The flower acts and grows and reproduces according to its nature, which again is Christ. It does not have to behave like a flower in order to belong or to take root, but rather it is able to be a flower only after it has been embraced, rooted, and nurtured in the context of belonging. So where are the boundaries? Unlike seeds and flowers, our free will remain <clears throat> sorry, our free will means that we can and do make choices that go against the intentions of God, that our behavior doesn't inevitably reflect the DNA of Christ. However, this understanding teaches us that for the new life to be born, we have to accept a degree of uncertainty when embracing people with, as of yet, unflowered belief. Jesus did not teach that we need to examine each seed before we plant it. He said we will know the nature of the seed by the nature of the fruit it produces. This demands that we allow fruit to be produced first. This is risky. This is messy. This is complicated. But this has been our commitment. With this understanding, then, the teaching of Jesus that we explored in this chapter reminds us that our focus must be on the nature and the quality of the soil in which the seeds of belief are planted. In other words, our primary focus should not be policing who is and is not welcome in our community, but rather we should focus on creating communities in which the fragile but promising beliefs and hopes of others have the best opportunity to be rooted and to thrive. Looking to our own hearts in an act of healthy self-love also becomes an expression of loving others because they will benefit from our commitment to humility and repentance. This is a significant paradigm shift, moving from a posture of policing to an almost maternal care for the new life being formed in our community. We bear the greater responsibility at this stage. Our behavior, not the outsiders, must be held to a high standard. The Sermon on the Mount is critical in forming us into the kind of soil in which people can be fruitfully rooted. I can't help but think of the story of the woman caught in adultery who was brought before Jesus for judgment. By the letter of the law, this woman had crossed the line. Her behavior clearly allowed for the absolute act of exclusion, death by stoning. But Jesus do not, does not exclude her, and don't miss how critical this is, but rather stoops down and begins to draw on the dirt. Then he turns to the accusers, addressing the sinful behavior of the believers before that of the woman caught in sin, and invites anyone without sin to cast the first stone. Then he returns to the dirt. When he stands up again, he sees that he and the woman are alone. He asks her if anyone is accusing her, to which she replies, there is no one. Then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Notice, she has not repented or confessed her sin, and yet Jesus, the only man who could have rightfully condemned her, does not. Only then does he say, go now and leave your life of sin. Only here at the very end of this exchange does Jesus address her behavior. He knows that her behavior is more likely to be transformed by his loving defense and embrace, which put him at very real risk, than through fear of judgment, legitimate as it might have been. So where do we draw the line? Sometimes when I read the story of Jesus and this woman, I imagine that when Jesus stooped down, he was drawing a line in the sand. 
He drew a line in the sand between the accusers and the woman, and he stood on her side of the line. This is the kind of community I want to be a part of. Hmm. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, it, we could end there, but maybe I just make a reflection on it that as you've read that, it just it so strikes me that I have three boys, and my deepest desire is that they would feel they belong, you know? Um, and the most important gift I can give them is letting them know that they belong, they're mine, that they'll always be mine. And just as we've talked about your story and about LGBTQ youth around the world, um, surely the heart of God is that they would feel that they belong. And um, I really pray that as we listen to this podcast that we will be uh, moved to spread that sense of belonging wherever we go. Um, today, Brother Thierry at the Benedictine Monastery quoted St. John of the Cross, at the evening of life, we shall be judged on our love. Mm. And surely that is the mark of a Christian. It's the mark of a, a follower of Jesus. And um, so I want to thank you, Jamie, for, for being a great guy, you know, and... and um, I'd love to meet your wife, Kim, someday. I, I love your, um, just that picture of your lovely marriage and your, uh, your children and, uh, and the fact that you're living life in, in a city that, uh, you know, is, I'm sure there's this charm about it and there's a beauty to it, but mm -hmm. uh, it's in some ways inhospitable and you've gone and, and sought to go and learn there and to... Uh, plant your roots there, and and so in that way you're a model to us um, uh, um, of a of a life of someone who's who's showing love at the at the core of your being. So, thanks for doing that, and uh, and Godspeed on the journey of of continuing to write and and um, joyfully impact people with a with the grace and love and mercy and character of God. Um, so thanks. Thanks, Johnny. So I just want to encourage you all to uh, follow Jamie, uh, follow his blogs, and he has a Patreon account, and I encourage you to support him in that way. Uh, and while you're doing that, you might also want to support Guardians of the Flame. Uh, we're continuing to try to uh, raise funders and supporters, and people will get behind us uh, uh, in our work and making documentaries and podcasts. Uh, and so I really just want to implore you to consider whether you might want to um, sign up on patreon.com forward slash guardians of the flame. Um, sign up for as little as $5 or, or more. It's an American website, so it's all done in U.S. dollars, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I really uh, want to uh, just really make that kind of request that um, you consider that um, and also consider supporting Jamie because he's doing good work uh, and we all need supporters and uh, one of the beautiful things about this kind of podcasting social media kind of world we live in now is that there is a sense of you can have that kind of global sense of community as kind of people from all over the world get behind you and what you're doing so we're very appreciative of those who already are supporting us um, in whatever way you do and uh, uh, maybe think about joining those ranks of uh, patreons so okay thank you <laughs>